Nu schulan herion, hier von riches weird, mehrte des mechta, and his modje thank, work wulder fader, swa he wundre gewes, eche drichten, ur on stelda. Here a shop, earthen bernem, hufen te rufe, haleg shipend, da midanjerd, man kinis weird, eche drichten, after Tude, firm folden, freal michtig. Someone speaks, someone hears. No need to go any further. It is not he, it is not she, it's I, or another, or others. What does it matter? The case is clear. It is not he, she, they, who I know. I am, that's all I know, who I cannot say I am. I can't say anything, I've tried, I'm trying. We know nothing, know of nothing, neither what it is to speak, nor what it is to hear. Hello, it's Steve, and this is another episode of Poetry Koan. So at the beginning of this episode, I read two pieces. Uh, one was by a poet who is known as Cademon, uh, who I'm going to talk a little bit more about. And the other is by a poet, writer, playwright known as Samuel Beckett. So the Cademon poem is often referred to as Cademon's hymn. And it's actually one I recite every day as part of my poetry liturgy. Um, I mean, I vaguely know how it sort of translates, uh, but I've learnt it in the old English, and that's how I recite it. Um, so, Cademon, who, like Madonna and Prince, is only known to us by the single name, is often referred to as the creator of the first poem in English. And that is, Cademon's hymn is sometimes considered to be the first poem in English, Old English, that is. He, I say he, it could be a she, I don't really know, uh, lived approximately 1,500 years ago in Whitby Abbey, which can still be found on the East Cliffs above Whitby in Yorkshire, overlooking the North Sea. And I've never been there, but I have promised myself that when Corona is over, I am going to make a pilgrimage to Whitby Abbey. Um, and recite this poem there. Uh, Bram Stoker set Dracula in Whitby, and the ruins of the monastery feature in Mina Murray's journal in chapter 8, where she wakes up concerned and alarmed in the middle of the night to find her friend, Lucy, has vanished. Now, if you remember, if you've read Dracula, Lucy is prone to sleepwalking, and so is eventually spied by her friend across the harbour in the grounds of the abbey, lying in a, quote, narrow band of light as sharp as a sword cut, whilst next to her a dark figure, Dracula, feasts on her blood. Now, 1,400 years before this grisly fictional event, a less grisly but still quite possibly fictional event occurred in the moonlit grounds of the Abbey in question. Although, like a lot of fiction, it has come down to us in the guise of so-called history, which is to say, Bede's Historia Ecclesiastica, in which he recounts how the lay brother, the quasi-illiterate Cademon, 
stole away one evening to sleep with the animals because, well, because he felt ashamed by his inability to join in with the freestyle rapping and bantering over all that groovy harp music that the other monks were enjoying, uh, primed by food and drink, I assume. And while Cameron was asleep, he had what we might now recognize as a kind of anxiety dream in which someone approached him and asked him to sing a Principium Creaturarum, if that's pronounced correctly, uh, that's the Latin, and the phrase translates basically as the beginning of created things, a kind of creation myth. Now, according to Bede, Cademon, on awakening, shared this hymn with his foreman, who then got the abbess, St. Hilda of Whitby, to vouch for the authenticity of this dream as a divine vision. And voila, the first poem in English is born. That's the official non-fictional account. But as Martin Irvine explains in his essay, Medieval Textuality and the Archaeology of Textual Culture, the poem is, quote, totally formulaic and that, quote, rather than providing an origin for poetry, Cademan's hymn is composed, in fact, of a number of anonymous intertextual and transtextual units drawn from a word hoard, the poetic lexicon, a metrical and syntactical model whose very mode of being is that which is always already said before. I think I might need to repeat that. So this poem, the so-called original poem, is in fact totally formulaic and rather than providing an origin for poetry, is in fact composed of a number of, quote, anonymous intertextual and transtextual units drawn from a word hoard, the poetic lexicon, a metrical and syntactical model whose very mode of being is that which is always already said before. Another way of putting this is that it's a kind of mosaic of textual citations, hardly revealing the identity of the poet, but rather the intrinsic anonymity of Old English poetry. As Martin Irvine says in the essay, Cademon is a poet finally, finally anonymous. And maybe even finally anonymous with both the aesthetic bearings of that word, you know, finely, rich, valuable, costly, as well as the moral etymology suggesting true, genuine, faithful, constant. Finally, Cadmon is finally anonymous, as well as finally anonymous. And for those pre-moderns, um, anonymity, intertextuality and transtextuality, to clothe the, the moves with, you know, those highfalutin academic terms, was a given when it came to notions of authorship. This would only change in the 18th and 19th centuries, as we shall see, uh, but it was in the mid to late 20th century that critics like Barth and Foucault would return to questions about authorship and anon anon anonymity again. And that's probably where maybe some of this sounds a bit familiar to you. Bath, most famously, of course, in The Death of the Author, where he writes how, for example, for Mallarmé, quote, as for us, as for us moderns, it is language which speaks, not the author. To write is to reach through a pre-existing impersonality, that point where language alone acts, performs, and not oneself. 
I'm going to continue with this quotation. Uh, Barth says, Malamé's entire poetics consists in suppressing the author for the sake of the writing, which is, as we shall see, says Barth, to restore the status of the reader. Malamé's entire poetics consists in suppressing the author for the sake of the writing, which is, as we shall see, to restore the status of, of us, the, the readers. And Foucault also reminds us about this in his essay, What is an Author? Um, saying that our ideas about authorship and the sense of authors owning their texts is an inherently modern form of appropriation, harking back to the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century, when our current system of droit d'auteur and the various copyright rules we associate with this were first established. So, when it comes to asking the question, who wrote that, and replying with someone's name, we are dealing with an essentially modern phenomenon encompassing just a couple of centuries. There was a time, Foucault writes, when all texts, which we now call literary, which is to say stories, folk tales, epics, tragedies, poems, etc., were accepted, circulated, and valorized without any question about the identity of their author. The author's job or function before the 1800s was much more in line with that of a sort of ideas or even just a pleasure, right, a pleasure disseminator in a way that a baker disseminates bread and also pleasure. I get a lot of pleasure from bread. I don't know about you. Um, so to echo Beckett again, I mean, this time from um, text for nothing, which Foucault in fact quotes in this essay, uh, the quote Foucault uses is, what matter who's speaking? Someone said, what matter who's speaking? Let me read that again because I think I gobbled it. What matter who's speaking? Someone said, what matter who's speaking? There we go, that's better. Now, you or I, or indeed Cademon, whoever he or she was, probably don't have much of a problem with this. But <laughs> quite a few people on Twitter do. And when I say Twitter, I don't necessarily mean the platform or any individuals on that platform. I mean, I mean really the Twitter hive mind, which works its way out in highly circumscribed rules and regulations, which are enforced, I believe, largely via a kind of uninterrogated and perhaps really largely unconscious series of diktats. And one of these unwritten rules is around authorship and attribution, and it's sort of conveyed thus, thou shalt not leave off the name of an author when tweeting someone's poem or a page from a book. Even if a tweet, let us not forget, is by and large the equivalent of walking down the road and overhearing a few words from a stranger's mouth before you walk on. It is not a published or edited or fact-check article or book. It's not even a more um, extensive personal blog or, or article or even podcast like this one. It is for the most part people, including me, um, a, a kind of digital commonplace where we post things we've seen or read or heard or thought either because we want to remember them for ourselves or in the hope that someone else might feel compelled to comment in some way. Tweets for me, personally, are conversation starters. And with this in mind, I'm hoping to have even more conversations on Twitter than I normally do, which is not that many, not for want of trying, 
prompted perhaps by someone replying to a poem with who wrote that um, as I am starting to leave names of poems and I'm hoping that obviously I'm going to get asked who wrote that and in responding not with a name but with a conversation maybe or with at least an invitation to a conversation maybe one will follow my experience of Twitter is largely dictated through the lens of the poetry community um, I joined it, Twitter that is, in 2017 after discovering this account um, by an Iranian-American poet called Kaveh Akbar, who every day in 2018, and to some extent now, without fail, would tweet a few poems from whatever book he was reading at the time. And I suppose for a few years, I took Kaveh as my model and would hunt um very assiduously for exciting new and old poets and poems to tweet and retweet. You know, I was always buying books and going to the poetry library. Um, and that I did that for, for, for quite a few years. Um, and I guess when I was doing that, I was really following no other guidelines other than, you know, what delighted my sensibilities. But I would always give the name of the writer when I tweeted the poem. But after a while, I began to notice something about both the poems I was tweeting as well as those being tweeted by others. I noticed that we were all being kind of guided or maybe even policed by an invisible hand, one which took me a few years to identify. And the way this hand worked was not only through precedent and imitation, but also via Twitter's own insidious form of carrots and sticks. And these are very simple, and you'll be very much aware of this if you're on Twitter. If you tweet something, and this appeals to the hive mind, which is to say, whatever that is, residing in Twitter's hive brain with its own kind of obscure algorithm for how information is distributed, then you, as a tweeter, are rewarded for your efforts by lots of likes and retweets. However, fall foul of the hive mind and you will be punished to some extent with scant or even no likes and retweets. It's really as simple as that. And this sort of seesaw motion of carrots and sticks becomes particularly evident when you only tweet about one thing. I know this because for over two, two years I exclusively tweeted and retweeted photographs of poems I'd read and loved and wanted to keep or share for, for myself or with others, along with the names of their writers. And even though my main purpose for doing so was to have this sort of personal online digital commonplace, I noticed that one, and when I say one, I mean I, I noticed that I couldn't help but be affected by the social feedback I was getting to these tweets as I went along. Um, I've used the word insidious because it took me a while to fully understand how I was being influenced not only by other people's tweets but by their feedback through these likes and retweets. And eventually I came to understand that, well, there are certain poets that the Twitter hive mind adores and there are others that it really doesn't care for. And if you tweet a poem by one of the adored poets or one of the sort of flavors of the month, whoever is currently occupying that spot, and it has changed a number of times in the last three or four years, then 
you are going to be rewarded for for doing so by lots of retweets and likes, uh, which will then just strengthen, you know, your desire or your uh, behavior to tweet the poems that other people are liking and retweeting. Um, and some of these poems that I tweeted would get up to 100 retweets, which is Okay, I understand. Completely and utterly diddly squat in terms of modern social media virality. Um, But for something that so few people are interested in anyway, poetry, I mean, this can feel for the tweeter a bit like winning the dopamine jackpot um, as far as our kind of socially attuned minds are concerned. Because it seems that our minds translate likes and retweets into kind of affirmations of our own sort of wobbly egos, which then, of course, keeps us tweeting what the hive mind wants us to tweet. And that keeps on, of course, making money for tweet, for, for, for Twitter and, and, and then, well, capitalism. And some poets that I tweeted, even though I felt their work was of equal value and interest, um, particularly a number of um, new poets um, modern poets, um, yeah, uh, even though their poems were, you know, kind of, I thought, very similar in content and style to the sort of kosher poets who got all the tweets, they were just not tweeted, liked, or retweeted that much, and sometimes not at all. I found this very interesting, especially as my initial impression of Twitter through Kaveh was that it supported a very diverse and wide-ranging array of tastes, that it was very sort of inclusive and kind of Catholic in that way. But I no longer believe this to be the case. Tweeting is a very selective process. I mean, today, apart from a bunch of poems that had caught my eye, I tweeted about having watched Leonard Bernstein on YouTube. Um, It was a lecture which is called The Delights and Dangers of Ambiguity, um, which is absolutely wonderful. I also tweeted about my little doggy pal, Max. Um, And yet, having revisited my YouTube history, (laughs) I can see that I also watched on this day um, a stand-up set on Comedy Central. Um, I also watched uh, Angela Merkel's 12-minute address to... Germany about the coronavirus after hearing Dan Savage singing its praise on on his podcast. And then scrolling down further, I also watched, um, I see that I also watched a few minutes of a Hania Rani concert, who's this pianist that I really love at the moment, um, as well as half a video of some guy explaining the secret to a Darren Brown illusion. And finally, just because I was checking the spelling of the title for a silly little comment that I made in a text to someone, um, I also watched Chattanooga Choo Choo, played by the Glenn Miller Orchestra. And yet, of all of those things, I only shared the, the, the Lenny Bernstein Harvard lecture mainly because of all those things. This is the video I most wanted to remember having enjoyed on this day in the middle of the coronavirus. But I think it would be a little bit disingenuous of me not to acknowledge that there were other forces at work. I mean, we all have some notion of how we'd like others to see us, which is connected, of course, to how we'd most like to see ourselves. And I think it's fair to say that I'd like to see myself 
and also give this impression to others as being predominantly a deep thinking, somewhat cultured, even somewhat genuine, well, not even somewhat, hopefully um, very genuine, nice, sincere human being. And so naturally, my online avatar tries to reflect that. So those aspects of me that don't fit into this socially mediated profile, I don't share on public platforms. And, and I think we all do this. Um, the sociologist Irvin Goffman in his book, The Presentation of Self, likened this to a kind of theatrical performance. So there is the stage, in this case, our social media platforms like Twitter or Instagram, where we present highly curated versions of ourselves in an attempt to shape and influence the impressions others have of us, as well as to bolster our own self-esteem. And then there's the back region where we put aside those roles and do things that might be in conflict with our presented selves. And of course we do because we're, we have dualistic minds. We're, we're, we're never one thing or another. We're always kind of both. So, for example, you know, none of the largely, let's call them woke folk that I follow in Twitter, and I would hopefully count myself amongst them, none of them ever post about what kind of porn they watch or the shitty things that they sometimes say or text to their loved ones or indeed anything that might in some way call into question their, which is also to say our, avowed and important allegiance to Western liberal values. In order to strengthen those shared values, Goffman also explains how performers, in this case Twitter avatars, will work together in regulated as well as unregulated teams, forming bonds of collegiality based on their common commitment to the performance they are mutually engaged in and want to continue experiencing. And that, in a nutshell, is the, the echo chamber filter bubble, right? You see this a good deal on Twitter where everyone is both performer of their idealized selves, an audience to others, as well as a kind of director who, as Goffman explains, uh, quote, may be given the special duty, the special duty of bringing into line any member of the team whose performance becomes unsuitable. Soothing and sanctioning are the corrective processes ordinarily involved, end quote. Soothing and sanctioning are the corrective processes ordinarily involved. And soothing and sanctioning on Twitter work, by and large, through likes and retweets, or the lack of likes and retweets, but also through tut-tut comments and sometimes even open berating. So what happens when we stop attributing human names to pieces of text and go back to an expressive system that existed for about a thousand years, stretching from Cademont, at least in English, stretching from Cademont all the way to Defoe's Robinson Crusoe. I don't really know what happens. I mean, currently I'm trying this out as a personal experiment on Twitter. And so far, I feel lighter and freer since I started leaving off authors' names in my tweets. The, the words therein, the sort of the poems themselves, now seem to function more, even more as riddles and koans um, for me and, and maybe others, for others too. And as my handle currently on Twitter is, at Poetry Koan, uh, K-O-A-N, I guess I fi I'm finally arriving at the place I'd unknowingly been aiming for right from the start. I am also... <laughs> 
<laughs> unsurprisingly, losing followers. The other wonderful thing about tweeting as nobody forward slash everybody is that I no longer have to listen to my super ego or my inner critic playing whatever version of identity politics radio is now being played, right? Moaning at me because I'm not tweeting enough poems from a certain ethnic group or sexuality or nation, or alternatively, alternately moaning that I'm tweeting too many poems from a certain ethnic group, sexuality or nation. That's a game I think a lot of us play. A game or a trap, I'm not really sure. And for me personally, this feels a little bit like being able to both listen as well as play through poetry and other texts from more of a sort of blind auditions perspective. And I'm sure you're aware of um, what, what's going on, particularly, say, in the classical music field, where um, people from uh, ethnic minorities are uh, finally um, getting into orchestras and being allowed to play for orchestras um, due to some uh, well-known orchestras uh, doing blind auditions. So not um, not looking at names, not looking at faces, uh, but just focusing on the music being played. Um, and I guess that brings up the question of, you know, well, does a poem work or move me, you as a poem, right? Rather than as a confirmation of whatever bias, positive, negative, we may or may not have towards a particular author. Surely, removing the author's name, and thus all associations we have with that name, might enable this to happen more than it usually does when a poet's existential CV, which is to say their nationality, their sex, their race, their publishing history, their political persuasions, their class, etc., etc., arrive alongside a poem baked into their names. So, for example, does a Lucille Clifton poem, which I tweeted recently, read as a great poem, even if the name Lucille Clifton isn't attached to it? Well, guess what? Yes, it does. And that got lots and lots of tweets. And does a Thurston Moore poem rightfully bomb when someone tweets his latest efforts from the Marsh issue of poetry? Sorry, that was not me, by the way. Well, yes, it does. And that's exactly how it should be, because it, it's a shitty poem. One thing that being on this planet for almost 50 years, years has taught me is that if we try and keep our culturally predicated superegos happy, and I think they are, I mean, if you go and read Freud, that's what they are, they're, they're these culturally predicated things, then we might as well try and keep the wind happy because they change all the time and they can never be entirely appeased. Of course, if somebody... Um, direct messages me and says they googled a poem and couldn't find it and they really want to buy and read the whole collection from which it com uh, comes, I won't hesitate if I can remember to share those details. But for the most part, I don't think people are needing this information when they sort of grumble about a name being left off a poem. I think having the author's name is just a, a, an unquestioned custom or praxis or rule, especially on Twitter. So from now on, if people ask me the author of a poem I've just tweeted, I will tell them Cademon. Not to be facetious or withholding, but because in some way this is true. You might be able to attest to this yourself if you've ever made a poem. The initial draft isn't really composed 
it isn't composed at all. It's more like transcribed, amenuensis, like from from a kind of hmm, inchoate impulse or urge or or a sort of felt idea deep, deep, deep within you. I mean, ultimately, who knows where it comes from? God, the collective unconscious, Kate Mon, I don't know. And I'm, I'd be surprised if, if, if you do know. Um, but please tell me if you do, and, and I will take your word for, for that. I, for one, can't tell you what that impulse is or what it represents. I'd like to believe it's a, it's a common well from which we all dip our individual buckets and retrieve some sustenance and some joy and some solace in our all too brief, and particularly we're feeling this at the moment, all too brief and contingent lives. And if that's the case, please enjoy the water from my twittering, tweeting buckets as I enjoy the water from yours. But if you ask me where that water comes from, I will first of all point to the sky and then to our hearts, which were touched in some way, hopefully, by the words of this poem, enough to tweet it or read it, enough to even start a human conversation about it. And finally, I will point to the blood that beats in all our loopy veins, because I really believe that to be the case now. I believe all of this stuff, I believe it comes from me, it comes from you, it comes from no one, which is also to say, everyone. Thank you for listening, if you have been listening to me talking to myself. Um, <laughs> it's been great fun for me, and hopefully uh, some fun for you. Um, until we meet again, stay safe, Stay well and ciao ciao.